Please listen carefully. This is the House of Speakeasy podcast, where writers and audiences come together for close encounters of the literary kind. Brought to you live every month from House of Speakeasy. We are your hosts. I'm Amanda Foreman. And I'm Lucas Whitman. We're doing things a bit differently this episode. Instead of bringing you stories straight from one of our live shows, we wanted to dig back into the archives and showcase some of our favorite performances from over the years. When we created House of Speakeasy, we wanted it to be a space where writers could step out from behind the podium and really connect with their readers in ways they hadn't experienced before. And so the people we'll hear from in this episode exemplify what Speakeasy is all about. So let's jump right in with historian and journalist Simon Winchester, who performed at the first ever Speakeasy live show. In keeping with the night's theme, Plays with Matches, Simon chose to speak about an experience he had when he was 17 in London some 50 years ago. It was in 1962, the summer, and I had left school and I was taking, as many British children do, a year off before going up to university. And I attended a science fair in London and there met a petite and rather beautiful young woman from Canada. And the two of us, it sounds incredibly nerdy at this remove, we, we built a hydroponic tomato, or tomato, as you would say, production system. And in the process of doing this, fell head over heels for one another in the way that 17-year-olds do. And she went back to Canada, and I vowed that I would do everything in my power to go and see her. She lived in Montreal in a place called Verdun. I didn't much want to go by aeroplane, And I thought if I was going to cross the Atlantic, I would cross the Atlantic on a ship. And so I went to the Canadian Pacific office, and there was a clerk with a pince-nez and, I fancy, a quill in his hand. And I said, with all the sort of nervousness of a young schoolboy, how much does it cost to go by one of your marvellous ships, the Empress of Britain or the Empress of Canada, to Montreal? And he quoted a figure which was, for me, stratospheric and impossible, about £100, which in those days was a great deal of money. So I resolved that I had to get a job which would pay me £100 as quickly as possible. Well, in those days, there were two London newspapers, the Evening News and the Evening Standard, and they had something which has almost totally disappeared from newspapers these days, classified ads, if you remember them, small ads. And I was looking through the Evening News one afternoon, and I saw something which seemed to me to offer me the possibility of earning a great deal of money. It said, mortuary assistant, (laughs) Whittington Hospital, 11 pounds a week, which was a great deal of money in those days. Uh, Knowledge of basic anatomy, preferred but not essential. So it didn't didn't seem sort of Himalayan, the the bar to entry. So I... And I had been at school I had taken, because I was going off to read for a science degree at Oxford, I had taken zoology at A-level, and under my biology teacher, Mr. Hawthorne, I remember, we had dissected every known creature from Amphioxus to zebra, well, perhaps not zebra, but lots of mammals anyway. There was uh, obviously cockroaches and um, 
and dogfishes, but also rabbits. And of course, when you think a human being is really just an enormous rabbit, <laughs> m minus the ears and the tail. So I figured I could possibly manage this. So I rang the mortuary department and spoke to a chap who said his name was Mr. Utton. And he said, I I'm so pleased to hear from you. And I said, why? He said, well, because I've, this advertisement has been running for the last week and no one has applied for this job. He said, rather darkly, I put it down to necrophobia. He said, are you afraid of dead bodies? And I said, no, I don't think so. He said, well, please come to the Whittington Hospital. And I knew the Whittington, which is a great sort of Victorian mausoleum on the Archway Road. At the bottom of it, there's a graveyard, perhaps somewhat ominously, um, where, where Karl Marx is buried. So anyway, I m went to the mortuary and met this Mr. Utton, who was a very genial man with a, with a, a club foot, I remember. Uh, and he introduced me to the two members of staff, the pathologist, the person who would actually uh, do the post-mortems. She was a German lady, and arrestingly, her name was uh, Dr. Fleischhacker, which, as you'll probably <laughs> realize means butcher, so uh, it seemed most appropriate. And then there was the, the tea lady who was uh, elderly, uh, had no teeth, dribbled a great deal, and had a voluminous moustache. So this was the team that I was going to be joining, very much the A team. And uh, he, I, I got the job without further ado because I was the only applicant. And Mr. Utten and I went down and sat on Karl Marx's tomb and ate cheese sandwiches. And he told me about his fascination with crosswords and how his name, Utten, came about because his father was called Hutton, but the person who filled in the birth certificate was deaf. And so they omitted the H mysteriously. And he said, and Dr. Fleischhacker will conduct the autopsies and you will prepare the bodies and I said, what exactly do you mean by prepare the bodies? And he said, oh, you, you'll get the hang of it pretty quickly. <laughs> and so then I went home and, and told my mother, and she was thrilled because she said, you'll presumably bring me lots of flowers because whenever there are dead people, there are lots of flowers. So I said I would do my level best to bring her flowers each evening. And so I started uh, the job. I turned up on a, on a Monday morning and the, the freezer was full of um, dead people. And I mean, I, I won't go into too graphic detail of what I did, but basically, if you accept the basic premise that Dr. Fleischhacker investigated the insides of the people, then I was the chap that opened the doors that allowed her to do that. And um, so it involved a lot of sharp knives and a lot of snipping of ribs and things. And then, okay, well, I'm so sorry, but... Delicious, yes, jolly good dinner, I hope. But the point, the point of this story uh, was about four weeks into my... Pro I got fairly accustomed to the routine of opening up the bodies and then doing after Dr. Fleischhacker had... And she incidentally smoked herself furiously and would stuff... You know, stub, stub, yes, yes, she did, yeah, yeah, yeah. She used the, the chest cavity as an ex, as a ashtray. I hope this isn't ruining your evening. I'm so sorry if it is. So anyway, a chap... Jump the shark, yes. Quite. A chap... I came in one Monday morning, and there was a chap in the fridge, neatly dressed, without shoes and socks on, and he had a tag on his toe, a big sort of cardboard thing, saying, query, 
leukemia. Now, I didn't quite know what to do with this, so I looked up and there's a manual, uh, and Mr. Utton, who clearly had a thing for the lady with the moustache and the no teeth and the dribbling, was off having breakfast with her or something. So I was left alone with this man, and the dead man, that is, and uh, I looked up in the manual, you know, what to do with if you find a gunshot wound or what you do if you find a you know, suppurating you know, disease, looks as if it's infectious. But leukemia was quite simple. It said remove the femur and send it up to the laboratory for testing. So I did all the other stuff and then took this chap's trousers off and made an incision between his um, pelvis and his knee and wrenched this big bone out and washed it and sent it up to the path lab. And then did all the rest of it, and then, it's a tremendous, and then dressed him, and his leg kept flopping off the table. And then the undertaker came round to take away the body, and uh, he said, why is his leg flopping off the table? I said, uh, his name was Sid, he was a very nasty man with very colourful language. And I said, I don't know, Sid, I, I had to take one of his bones out and his, his leg keeps flopping off the table. He said, well, I can't take this leg. He says, I can't take this body. I can't sign for it in that condition. I said, well, what am I to do? He said, well, you've got to find something to put in his fucking leg, you know? So I said, I said, what? He said, well, it's not my job to tell you. He said, but I'll tell you what. He says, I'll go and have me dinner and I'll come back at two o'clock and I'll expect you to have found something to stiffen up the leg and then everything will be okay. So he left me with this sort of legless, half-naked man. And I looked in the backyard of the... A backyard of a Victorian hospital is a pretty unattractive place with sort of rats and puddles and things. But I found a piece of drain pipe about 18 inches long. And I had a skill saw, which I used to, when I had to take off people's head, uh, craniums. And I used it to saw it to 14 inches, which was the length from his patella to his... Uh, uh, pelvis, and I undid the blanket stitch, and I put it in, and the leg shot out like a ramrod. It was just tremendous. And I sewed him up again, pulled his trousers on, put his suit jacket on, and just in time, and Sid, now smelling somewhat of the beer he had had for lunch, came back and he said, that's marvellous, that's wonderful. I don't know what you've done, mate, but that's brilliant. Signed for the body, backed the Daimler up to the, uh, to the loading bay and put the fellow in the coffin, and that was that. At least I thought that was that. The next day, Mr. Utton was in his office and the phone rang, and I heard this enraged tone gathering as Mr. Utton was dealing with someone at the other end, and he foot down the phone and he came out to me and he said, there's a problem. I said, why? He said, you remember that fellow that you, you put the, his leg yesterday? I said, yes, yes. Well, he wasn't buried, he said. He was cremated. And you can see the scene. He described it impeccably, the grieving relatives, the curtain closing, the coffin disappearing into the flame, everyone thanking the vicar, looking at the flowers, and then suddenly from the back you hear a clunk and engineers saying things like, what's that? And it was 14 inches of red-hot galvanised iron drainpipe and mercifully, one of the uncles, there was talks of lawsuits and things like that, but he said, um, oh, George, he said, I never knew he had it in him. <laughs> and Mr. Utton took me by the, my earlobe and led me to a cupboard and opened it, and there was a sort of a basket with a, like a quiver with about 20 chair legs 
He said, white pine, next time you get a chat with leukemia, put one of those in his leg and it burns to nothing in a microsecond. So playing with fire, don't yet let youngsters, 17-year-olds anyway, have access to sharp knives. Let that be a warning to you all. Thank you very much indeed. Simon Winchester, live on the House of Speakeasy stage. Simon is known for his best-selling books on the rise of China, the formation of the US, and most recently, The Pacific, a biography of the Pacific Ocean and its role in the modern world. Now we'll hear from our next storyteller, Elliot Kalin, former lead writer at The Daily Show and currently head writer on the rebooted television series Mystery Science Theater 3000. When Elliot took to the stage during our Falling for Perfection theme show, he spoke about the magic of movies and how they framed his view of reality as a kid from New Jersey with big ideas about life in New York City. It all comes down to one thing, which is that movies make things feel real when they really shouldn't at all. And in fact, they make real things seem even realer than real. I'll explain that by talking about uh, a night about a year and a half ago when I was walking down the Coney Island boardwalk at night with one of my best friends and his wife and my wife were walking about 15 feet behind us and we were just talking about probably nothing interesting at all to the people in this room, horror movies or something like that. And my wife was talking about whatever, I don't know. And I suddenly realized, if this was a Woody Allen movie, this would be the scene where he would turn to me and reveal that he'd been having an affair with his teaching assistant. And I'd be surprised, but not really shocked, because the morality of the movie is kind of weird, and I'm not going to judge him about it. And we talk about it at our full volume, knowing full well our wives can't hear us because they're not supposed to know about this till later in the movie. <laughs> and then I'll, he'll make a joke, and I'll make a joke, and then I'll make a better joke than the last joke, and then cut Guggenheim exterior, Dixieland jazz, we're in a new scene. <laughs> and what's weird is that I remember that night the way Woody Allen would have shot it with us in the distance coming towards the camera very slowly and never quite reaching it, which is, I couldn't have seen it that way. That makes no sense. But I have no memory any other way. And that's the thing. Things seem more real in movies to me. They make buildings that I've seen in real life seem more valid when I've seen them in a movie. If there's a movie set in my neighborhood and I see a house I know, I go, oh, that's a real place. More than standing in front of it would do. And more than that, they make movies, movies make real things seem exciting. And so I wanted to talk about the two New Yorks that I grew up with, or specifically the one from the movies, uh, and how the movies affected one of them. Because I grew up with two New Yorks growing up in New Jersey and coming here. There was the real New York that I actually went to, which was the city of grandmas and dinosaur skeletons and scary homeless people that you pretended you weren't looking at, but when they looked away, you looked at them really hard. <laughs> and then there was the other New York that I saw in movies, which I called the city where grown-ups live. Uh, which was the New York made up out of kind of ordinary, everyday moments that kids don't get to experience and that the movies just kind of hint at. They seep out around the edges of the plots in a way that the filmmakers can't control, but they have to put them in any way. And probably my first exposure to this concept of the city where grown-ups live was the movie Muppets Take Manhattan, which (laughs) is maybe the most exciting title a movie can have. It starts with Muppets, so you know you're having fun right off the bat. It ends in Manhattan which it has to do because any word after the word Manhattan is an anticlimax. 
the only way I could see that title would be more exciting if it was like The Muppets versus Godzilla in Manhattan. <laughs> and for people who aren't aware of that with that movie, uh, familiar with the movie, aware. Everyone's aware of it. Come on, it's The Muppets. Get with it, people. Uh, that movie, there's a sequence where Kermit the Frog, the kind of ringleader of the animal puppet vaudeville troupe that is the Muppets, and who is a frog, as his name suggests. It's not like a nickname. Uh, he is hit by a taxi cab and loses his memory. And in the hospital, he's given the new identity of Phil. And that's kind of the city is absorbing him into its mass that way. And Phil is an ad exec who wears a suit and works in an office and goes to meetings. And on his lunch break, he and his coworkers go to a diner. And to the makers of the movie, who were basically middle-aged hippies at that point, this is a terrible thing, clearly. This unique spirit has been crushed into the shape of the man in the gray flannel suit. It's awful. And as a child, that message went right over my head. And all I knew was I wanted to be Phil. I wanted a desk with a phone on it. I wanted to wear a suit. I wanted to take a lunch break. All I saw was that in the city, even a frog can become an autonomous, self-supporting citizen. And when, and don't applaud, I have limited time. Uh, And when Kermit gets his memory back, which is supposed to be the happy point of the movie, I was so sad all the time. This is a tragedy. But I don't want you to think the city where grown-ups live was just gray conformity. there were a lot of other things going on, crazy things. Uh, an example of that was from the movie Gremlins 2, The New Batch, which is a near-perfect movie. And the whole thing takes place inside of, almost entirely inside of one office building. So there's a lot of great stuff that I loved as a kid. There's people riding elevators to cubicles and things like that. There's one hallway with a carpet and very soft lighting. And as a kid, I used to think about that hallway over and over again and what my business would be on that hallway. Uh, but there's a scene in it that tells us something different about the city where grown-ups live. When one of the gremlins, if you're not familiar again, it's kind of like, an, uh, kind of like a lethally prankish lizard imp. Uh, they, he's injected with a bat serum that gives him leather wings, and he flies out into the streets and manages to find one of the recurring characters from the last movie, Murray Futterman, played by the great Dick Miller, and attacks him right on the street, hitting him with his wings. He scratches his face, and there's blood everywhere. It's really horrifying, and it's right in view of the pedestrians on the street. And the thing that always got to me as a kid was how those pedestrians reacted to this, which was that they did not react to it. (laughs) They ignored it completely and kept walking, heads down, thinking about whatever it is grown-ups think about in the city, like the Statue of Liberty or where they're gonna, what diner they're going to have their lunch break at. And as a kid, I wanted to be one of them. I wanted to be so busy and so intent on what I was doing that I not only was I not impressed by the sight of this hovering reptiloid goblin attacking a man, it was not even worth lifting my head. And of course, all of this comes together in the movie that did more than anything to mold my view of New York as a child, and that was Ghostbusters, which is, to my mind, thank you, to my mind, the portrait of late 20th century living in New York City. As a child, I watched it roughly a million billion times, uh, partly for the monsters, but also for one scene in particular that people who know the movie will know, where Sigourney Weaver is returning to her apartment. She has bags full of groceries in her arms. She walks down the hall. Rick Moranis, her neighbor, bothers her a second. She shrugs him off and goes to her apartment. And she sets the bags down on her counter in her tiny kitchen, and she proceeds to begin putting her groceries away. And in a moment, you learn that the apartment is haunted, and she has demons in the fridge, and that's all very well and good. It was very entertaining. But that's where the scene kind of started losing interest for me. To me, the exciting part of that scene was seeing someone living in a high-rise building... (laughs) 
having their own kind of private space inside this larger human hive, this little pocket of grown-up yoursness, set apart, but like within the city. And that was it. That was my big fantasy at the time, was being someone with their own apartment who could take their time putting away their groceries. That was who I, what I wanted to be when I grow up. But I say, actually, that was my biggest fantasy. That's not true. Ghostbusters also introduced me to the kind of totem uh, of this life for me, something that I've, that's been of special significance to me all this time, and that is the late-night workplace after-hours Chinese takeout dinner. And every child growing up has their fantasy object they wish to obtain someday. For some boys, it's an F-15 fighter jet. For some, it's a Ferrari. And for me... It was that not-quite-square cardboard box with the very thin metal handle on a kind of spring or something uh, that had noodles or rice or whatever inside. And I would sit wondering, what will I be doing someday that is so important and takes so much time and is so urgent that I don't even have time to stop for dinner, that I've got to call some man somewhere in Chinatown and tell him to box up something and bike it to me so that I can eat it with sticks right out of the box because I don't have time to dump it onto a plate. And then right after there's a lot of it, and I've eaten a lot of it, and the boxes are all littered around the desk, then I'll come up with the big idea that saves the day for the company. To me, at the time, children ate off a plate with a fork and knife, and adults ate out of a box with sticks. Uh, And so that was the life in the city where grown-ups lived that I dreamed about. And those were the moments I wanted, the moment where you shut the door to your haunted apartment so you could put away your groceries, or the shuffling of chairs as your fellow frog executives got up from the meeting, or the kind of white noise of the gremlins hovering in midway around you that you only half hear because you're too busy hurrying off to where you need to be. And so as I grew up, I kept this in my mind, and I hurried to grow up, and I could, I hurried to the city, and as soon as I could, I got out of school, and as soon as I could, I jumped into the world where grown-ups lived, and I did all the things. I wore a tie, I had a job, I commuted, I ate takeout in my tiny apartment, and I learned something about the city where grown-ups live, which is that it sucks. (laughs) All of those things, all of those things were terrible, and I felt... Like, I had fallen for the trick the movies play, which is they make normal things seem glamorous. And they make really boring things seem glamorous. There's the opening scene, if anyone's seen it, of Once Upon a Time in the West, where three men are sitting around a train station waiting for a train for, like, seven minutes of screen time. And it's amazingly exciting. But I've waited for trains. It's not exciting. It's terrible. And the problem is I still find myself watching these movies and I'll see a scene of someone eating in a diner or sitting on the subway and I get this emotional twinge of, oh, I hope I get to do that someday. That'll be amazing when I get to do that someday. And I have to tell myself, you did that today. (laughs) And you hated it. You couldn't wait to get off the train. The food was terrible. So if I'm being kind to myself, I'd say that I haven't lost my childlike sense of wonder and that's why it is, but as I've been a New Yorker for a number of years now, I'm at heart a cynic, so I'll just chalk it up to denial, basically. Um, but I have to say, even if the things I fantasized about turned out to not be perfect, I still think, in some deep part of my heart and deep part of my brain, and any other body parts that want to get in on the action, that these were the perfect fantasies that I could have had. Uh, and that these kind of mundane, trivial, boring fantasies of terribly boring things that adults do were healthier than the ones that the movies were trying to sell to me because, in the end, the movie fantasies are delusions. Let's face it. No matter what the films tell me, I'm never going to dance with a pig. I'm never going to bust a ghost. 
I'm never going to fight a monster, but I've worn a tie, and I've eaten Chinese food late at night at my desk, and I've rushed down the street ignoring the people around me, and I've had takeout, and I've had a tiny kitchen and taken my time putting my groceries away. And it tells me that, you know what's great about these dreams is they were totally achievable. <laughs> and how many people can tell you that they've lived all their childhood dreams? And there's some kind of magic in that. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. listening to House of Speakeasies, seriously entertaining podcast, where writers and audiences come together for close encounters of the literary kind. Now, another gem from the archives. We leave you with the novelist and philosopher Rebecca Neuberger Goldstein, who performed during our summertime blues show. As often happens at Speakeasy, Rebecca ended up sharing a story she's never told before. It is about the summer of 1957. And yes, I was alive in 1957. (laughs) I was very young. I probably didn't even realize it was 1957. I figured it all out afterwards when I figured out that it was the summer after the short-lived Hungarian Revolution. And during the chaos of that uprising, a couple of my relatives managed to slip through the porous borders. And eventually, they came and they found their way to my family's house in White Plains, New York. They came and they stayed with us that summer of 1957 in order to, as my mother very confusedly put it, find their feet. I'm I'm sure that she said that, and I spent a lot of time that summer staring at their shoes. (laughs) There were two of them. Uh, The woman's name was Cousin Elona, and the man's name was Cousin Zonvel, and they weren't married to each other. Uh, Cousin Zonville slept in our den, and I wasn't allowed to go into the den all summer long because he needed his privacy. And Cousin Alona moved into my room, and I moved in uh, with one of my sisters, and I slept on a cot. But I didn't mind at all because I loved having Cousin Alona and Cousin Zonville live in our house. Everything about them fascinated me. Uh, First of all, I love to listen to the language that they would speak to each other when nobody else was in the room or just I was in the room. And I would try to imitate this language when I was by myself. It sounded to me like the secret language of mermaids. It was filled with watery music. My mother didn't know this language, so when 
she was in the room. They would speak English, but they spoke it in their own way, all watery and wonderful. Cousin Alona liked to practice English with me, Rebecca. That's, that's how she said it. I loved it. Rebecca. I think that Cousin Alona was more ambitious than Cousin Zonval because she found her feet first. <laughs> and she moved away. And Cousin Zonval stayed with us for a much longer time. My mother also seemed fascinated by Cousin Alona and Cousin Zonval. That summer, she spent a lot of time in our living room, just sitting in the middle of the day when she never sat, and drinking tea and listening to their stories. And I had to be very, very quiet and try to be invisible because often when she noticed that I was there, she would make me go outside and play in the backyard. A lot of their stories were like fairy tales. They had been really, really rich. Their families hadn't had just one house the way our family did, but many houses. And Cousin Alona would always talk about their country house and how beautiful it was. And I pictured it just like the castle in the Cinderella story. And she spoke about the parties, the parties, the parties. Cousin Zonval used to wear my father's old brown suit. Every day, he would wear the brown trousers. And every evening for dinner, he would wear the jacket, no matter how hot it was that summer. He also wore my father's old white shirts. But he had once been a prince. My mother told me this. He still sometimes sort of acted like a prince, which means that he was quite rude. <laughs> he was living in our house, sleeping in our den, and he ordered us all around, even my mother. And everybody let him do it. Some of the stories that I heard that summer were extremely frightening. They were like the stories that my big brother used to make up in order to scare me out of my wits. And he always managed to do it, even though I knew that the stories weren't true. But Alona's and Zonville's stories were true, and I knew that they were true because sometimes Cousin Alona would cry. There had been a terrible place. They called it a camp, but it was completely different. And the name of this camp when they said it was so terrible that you heard in it everything that most frightened you about the world, all of the things that the grown-ups told you that you were such a silly child to imagine, you heard in that name. 
And I would never say that name out loud, not even in a whisper. It was all very confusing, but I couldn't ask any questions because I knew that if I asked any questions, I would never be able to sit in the living room and listen to their story. So I tried to figure things out for myself. And here's what I figured out. There had been very bad people in the country where everybody spoke the wonderful language of Cousin Alona and Cousin Zonfall. And these bad people had hated Cousin Alona and Cousin Zonfall so much that they wanted to kill them. And also, they had wanted to kill all of the people whose names I heard all summer long. And here was the really interesting thing about those names. I knew all of those names because they were the names of all of the kids in our family. It was my name and the names of my sisters and my brother and all of our cousins. And these bad people had wanted to kill them. But they were also very good people. And Cousin Alona and Cousin Zonval had been hidden by these good people. So I heard a lot of stories about the good people. I probably heard more stories about the good people than the bad people that summer. And this gave me an idea. It gave me an idea for a test. Whenever anybody wanted to be my friend, I would think... Will she hide me? Will he hide my family? And as people who know me well can tell you, that is still the test that I use till this day. I don't have very many friends. (laughs) The other thing I figured out that summer was that these people... Um, some of whom had been very good friends with Cousin Alana before, these people had told terrible lies about Alona and Zonfall. And I told lies sometimes, too. But I always knew when I was telling a lie, these bad people had believed their own lies They had made terrible mistakes in their belief. And this also gave me an idea. I wanted to try to figure out whether any of my beliefs were mistakes. And I tried to go through all the things that I believed, which was very, very hard, and see if I could find the mistakes in any of them. The picture that I always got in my head and still get in my head when I think about the terrible mistakes that people make in their beliefs is The picture of Zonville in my father's old brown suit treating us all so rudely and everybody letting him do it because of the terrible things that had been done to him. Many years later, when I was a professor of philosophy at Barnard College, I used to pop into this little kosher takeout food place called Meal Mart on the Upper West Side. And I used to go there in order to um, visit Zonville. Uh, He worked there behind the counter, and he still had his elegant princely manners as he dished out, ladled out the chicken soup with matzo balls and his white apron that was stained with stuffed cabbage, and his face always lit up when he saw me, and he always insisted on calling me 
professor very loudly, although it was very embarrassing. Um, and I knew that this was for the sake of his colleagues at Meal Mart. As he got older, uh, his passion was for genealogy. He was trying to trace the lineage of our once illustrious Hungarian family. He had discovered a philosopher among our ancestors back in the 19th century, somebody who had written many books. Uh, he had the titles. It was his great desire to get his hands on one of these books, and he was going to translate it from the Hungarian for me. He was convinced that I had inherited my philosophical genes from this ancestor. And of course, I never told him that the reason I became a philosopher was because of him, because of Zonville. Standing there in my father's old brown suit in our living room, bringing all of these questions into our house, and the questions that I've spent the rest of my life trying to answer. Thank you. Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, talking about love and loss on the House of Speakeasy stage. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. Thanks again to Simon Winchester, Elliot Kalin, and Rebecca Newberger Goldstein for sharing these unique stories. And thank you for joining us on our trip down memory lane. To learn more about House of Speakeasy and what we do as a nonprofit, visit our website at houseofspeakeasy.org. And if you're in the New York area, please join us at one of our live shows at Joe's Pub at the Public Theater. I'm Amanda Foreman. And I'm Lucas Whitman. Thanks for listening.